the world of the unknown, and some would say unbelievable. Pigman, Pigman, I don't know. People will know we're not Canadian at this point. And that one is a a true story. scared the crap out of me at first, and I thought, wow. Well, we're recording. Should we get the show on the road? Let's get it done. Hello, and welcome to Creatures of the Night. I'm your host, Eric Burton. On this podcast, we discuss historic crimes, myth, urban legends, the paranormal, and the macabre. With us again this week is special guest host, my dad, Rick Burton. How's it going today, Dad? Heidi ho! Heidi ho, folks! (laughs) (laughs) How is everyone? Hope uh, all three of you that are listening enjoy this. <laughs> exactly. Our, our three, <laughs> including us two, so our one other listener <laughs> is enjoying this. Do we count this. the wives and fiancés and yeah, people sure. that, so we, so we that have, we make listen to it? Six? We have, we have half a dozen. We're, <laughs> we're I, good. I haven't forced Pam to listen to one yet. <laughs> Only a part of one. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, once they're they're all up and she can listen at her, you know, her pace, throw it exactly. out. Throw it yeah. on in the car or something while she's driving around running errands. She would do that. She would love it. Yep. Yeah. So today, we as Americans in the 20th and 21st centuries have been accustomed to seeing these mammoth structures we call correctional facilities or prisons for most of our lives. We as a nation seem to be conditioned to accept these structures as commonplace and rarely give them a second thought. It hasn't always been like that. Shortly before the turn of the 20th century, large state prisons were few and far between, especially west of the Mississippi, where small jailhouses were more the norm. It seems as with most things in the United States, once money and politics became involved in the prison system, we started to see far greater amount of attention paid to these prisons, especially from the government and the rich. Why am I rambling about state prisons and jailhouses, you might ask? Well, today's topic is just that, a state prison, the old Montana prison to be exact. This old penitentiary still stands to this day in Deer Lodge, Montana. And it's been around for how long? Since the 1850s, 60s? Uh, so about 1870, but we'll get into the, uh, we'll get into the history. Okay. So Deer Lodge, Montana... There's a small rural community founded in the early 1860s before miners flooded the area during the gold rushes. In 1870, the federal government commissioned a territorial penitentiary there. This facility would be used as a prison until 1979. Today, it is operated as a museum run by Powell County Museum and Arts Foundation. Now operating as the Old Montana Prison Museum, it is listed on the National Register of Historic Places. In a place that I have actually been personally yeah Sarah you and, I and your fiance yep. sarah did you guys actually do the overnight no we didn't do the the ghost tour i wish and we've talked about actually going back because sarah's got some history i read a couple of real real creepy stories about that yeah it i've heard some some people have had some serious experiences there but i would love to do that and we we definitely will be going back to deer lodge to to check out this prison sarah's family's got some history in deer lodge um oh but maybe we'll we'll save that for Even another episode might have been in the prison no <laughs> nope no nope. not that cool they, they were the co's <laughs> <laughs> but 
yeah, maybe we'll have her on for for another one of these episodes since we this should. is just part cool. one. Mm-hmm. And I should have said that at the top. This is part one uh, of what most three? likely three part series. Okay, lots of info. Yep. So, but yeah, so as you know, as I mentioned, Montana had commissioned the prison in 1870, or. Territorial penitentiary. So it was originally planned to have three rows of 14 cells with one inmate per cell. The original $40,000 was not enough, though, to build such a structure. Therefore, they wound up. Yeah, $40,000 back in 1870. That's a lot of money. I didn't look up the conversion, but I mean, I imagine. Probably worth a half a million. Yeah, at least. So that $40,000 wasn't quite enough to build the original structure that they wanted. So what happened, they wound up with a single row of 14 cells, which immediately caused the prison to stick two prisoners into each cell. So where they wanted three rows of 14 cells so they could have one inmate per per cell, mm-hmm. that $40,000 just wasn't enough. So they wound up having to build a single row of just 14 cells. Ooh, that would be $759,000 today. That's, yeah, that's a lot of wow. money. Well, you know. That's a lot of that's a lot of dough. That is, but, you know, you think about how much they probably cost, you know, if you look how at How much the, would it cost to build the same building today? Yeah, exactly. Ten times that. You know, how much money these prisons Ten are getting to, to do updates, and or even if you go and look at the most recent prison, I'm curious how much that cost to build. I'm assuming at least $10 million. Oh, God. I bet it's more like 50 Yeah, you're probably not wrong. Uh, it's crazy i'll I'll quit interrupting (laughs) well that's my job it is it is (laughs) so on july 2nd 1871 u.s marshal william wheeler took possession of the first nine prisoners to be incarcerated in the facility Mm. so so 1870 is when they commissioned or the state commissioned a territorial prison and you know was first 1871 july 1871 was when it got us first nine prisoners. I'm finding a theme in, in these that we've been doing the last few times, the last all well, the three that we've done or whatever it is. Yeah. But all of this all of this stuff seems to happen after right after the Civil War. Yeah. We're talking about. There's definitely a lot of, of stuff a that lot, happened. A lot of yeah. different things changed. Yeah. Big. Yeah. Absolutely. The the whole country was completely different, obviously. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. So July 1871, the first nine prisoners were incarcerated. It only took a single month before the prison was overcrowded. By August, six more prisoners had arrived. The burgeoning population was quelled somewhat when, in June of 1874, another tier of 14 cells was constructed, and the civilians of Deer Lodge were calmed when a 12-foot board fence went up in 1875. A lot of bad people. It, a lot of criminals. Well, you know, this is the this is the West. This wild is the West. Wild West. Wild. You know, eighteen seventies America, you know, what, mm-hmm. ten years after Civil War. Ten yeah, everybody 15 had years. Guns. Yep. So yeah, the prison's population continued to grow. So Congress actually allocated an additional fifteen thousand dollars for the construction of another tier of cells. Um, so they built the second tier. And then got more funding from the government for for another tier, so they could finally so get they to kept that three. Building up. Yep. Well, yeah. yeah, they're finally. You know, it took them five years to get to the original three three tiers that they wanted. So yeah, but the soft brick of the building could not support any more weight, 
Instead, the money went into an administration building with guard barracks, a warden's office, and a visitor's reception. Finally, in 1885, $25,000 served to provide the prison with a three-story cell block with 42 double occupancy cells, which was completed in 1886. The Montana Territorial Prison was finally completed to the original specifications, just in time to be handed over to the new state of Montana in March 1890. So it so, took them 16 years. years. Well, well, it was 16 18- years to get built to the original specifications. Well, from the day they started, really, if, if they opened on July of 1871 yeah, and, and didn't get finished till March 1886. of 1890... Uh, so the prison was handed over to the new oh, state of Montana oh, yeah, yeah, like in March 1886 is when Still. they finally finished the construction to the original specifications. So Ooh. now Montana's a state. It's 1890. But pretty much from the start, the prison was deemed inadequate and overcrowded by the state. This would result in a slow but continual construction at the prison over the next 50 years. After the prison was handed over to the state in 1890, legislators realized that the prison was too expensive to operate, leading the Board of Prison Commissioners to contract it out. Colonel Thomas McTeague and Frank Conley received the contract after offering two care for the prisoners for 70 cents a day, opposed to the $2 a day it was taking. Ooh, boy. Yeah, you think Some about that. getting fed. $2 a day. I'm, you know, I should have looked up the statistics of what it costs today to uh, house prisoners, but it's, um, it's a, I did, I it's a business. I kind of ran across it a couple of minutes ago. I did hear, see that it, uh, in California, they're going to try to build 13 new prisons, $7.4 billion. <sighs> yeah, dollar. it's a multi-billion dollar industry in our country. Oh, trillion dollars, got to be. It, yeah, it's got to be. As soon as we privatized prison systems and it became, mm-hmm. yeah, so... So, it wasn't great for that, but it hasn't no, gotten any better either. No. Yeah, I mean, this is this is kind of one of the first instances of privatized privatization of a prison. And yeah, and I don't I don't think it bodes well. No, I don't think it because it, it's all about money instead of mm-hmm. the care and rehabilitation of prisoners. It's kind of like work for corporate America. This is what? not a this is not hey. a political podcast, so we'll uh, we'll uh, keep that for our other. You could, you could edit that out, all right? <laughs> no, I, that's good stuff. But uh, we'll save that for for our political show that we're going to start. All righty. Oh, jeez. <laughs> Next thing you know, someone's got to take over for Rush, right? That, that's right. Exactly. <laughs> so yeah, so Colonel Thomas McTeague and Frank Conley uh, now running the prison offered to care for them for 70 cents a day. So Thomas McTeague had been the warden since 1885. So he came on and he was, you know, he was a colonel. Um, So he took control of the prison after they were given the, or I think he was warden before they, uh, before they offered to buy out the contract. Okay. But yeah, and Frank Conley was a guard who had rose through the ranks and became McTeague's right hand man. Thomas McTeague actually supplied financial backing, serving as a procurement officer in partnership with Frank Conley. So they were kind of a a team, if you will. This was the beginning of the reign of Warden Frank Conley. For the next 30 years, Conley would imprint into the fabric of Deer Lodge and the surrounding area. King Conley. (laughs) That's right. King Conley (laughs) of Deer Lodge, Montana. Sounds like a wrestler. 
That's your wrestling. <laughs> I like King it. Conley. King Conley. From the UK. Him and him and Jake the Snake can go at it. <laughs> <laughs> and Jake, he's alive, but I'll guarantee he's in a wheelchair. Oh god, that guy. I think he passed away, didn't he? I think he did a lot of those guys because yeah, of it's... the drugs and the, the beatings they took. And, oh uh, yeah, just bodies just beat. Yeah, because that stuff, even though it's not real, real. You're still hitting each other. Yeah, you're still giving your body up. Yeah, you're taking a beating, even though it's yep. quote-unquote fake. Yeah, exactly. All right, so Warden Frank Conley was born on February 28th, 1864 in Maryland. 16-year-old Frank Conley came to Miles City, Montana from Maryland in 1880. So just at 16 years old with his older Dang. brother. So he came to. You had to start young because your lives were short back then. That's you were right. 14 to 45. Yeah, you 16. Were it was 16 back then. Was 30. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so he came to Miles City, Montana, um, in 1880 with his older brother. He actually joined a Yellowstone National Park survey crew and returned oh, to nice. Miles City. Actually, 18 months later, after the uh, the survey was over, the sheriff in Miles City, Tom Irvine, took a liking to Conley despite his youth. And appointed him sheriff of Custer County. Deputy sheriff. Yep. Sorry. Thank you. Deputy. Right? Deputy sheriff of Custer County. Correct. That's pretty good. So how old is he? He's only um, like so eight, eighteen 19? months. Uh, yeah. So he's yeah maybe 18, 19, nineteen something like wow. that. Eighteen nineteen. Yeah. While delivering two prisoners to the penitentiary at Deer Lodge in eighteen eighty six, Conley was offered a position as a guard where he worked under Colonel Thomas McTeague. He resigned his post in Custer County and thus began his long affiliation with the prison. By 1890, however, Frank Conley became warden of the prison while McTeague handled the financial backing of the prison. He was only, what, he was like so 35, 18, 36 years then. Well, 1886, he was born in 64, so he was 22 when he came yeah, to. But, but he was the warden by the time he was 35, 36. 1890. So yeah. he would uh he would only been what 25, 26? You're right, twenty six years old. Yeah. So and from seven and <laughs> wow, wow. Yep. Yeah. Twenty five, twenty six. That's a lot of responsibility for a guy like that. Yep. I bet so, he was full of himself. Well, we will see. We will get into it for sure. <laughs> okay. Um. So yeah. So eighteen ninety, he became Frank Conley became warden of the position. This is a position Conley would hold until 1921. Ooh. So 31 years. Yeah. Over saw the cars come into being. Yeah, right. Exactly. You know, well, I mean, we were just we talked about it earlier about how different United States was after the Civil War. And, you know, mm -hmm. that was part it of it. Exploded. Yep. Technology and. Exactly. Inventions. Oh, just so much stuff. Coming out of, you know, those 50, 60 years after the, the Civil War. It's kind of crazy. Mm. So over the next 30 years, Conley shaped the philosophy and appearance of the prison. At first, Conley focused on bettering the prison facility. Immediately after taking the position of warden, he put the inmates to work to build a log cell house to alleviate the rampant overcrowding, which obviously we've already talked about. Mm -hmm. <laughs> The building housed 150 inmates in one large room in two tiers of wooden bunks. Believing the prisoners should work, Conley began to update the prison by first replacing its 12-foot wooden fence with a massive sandstone wall in 1893. Remember we talked about that fence that they put up? That, oh, uh, yeah. That uh, made the citizens of Deer Lodge feel, feel, a little bit feel a little bit safer. Yep. Safer, so he yeah. replaced that 
wooden fence with the massive sandstone wall, which is I think is like 20 feet tall or something like that. Dang. Yep. Not getting over that. Okay. Uh, actually, it says here. So it's actually four and a half feet thick. The wall formed a Ooh. solid perimeter around around the prison. Yeah, so it's about yeah, 20 feet tall and, yeah, four and a half feet thick of sandstone. <laughs> <laughs> In 1896, Conley deemed the old territorial penitentiary insufficient even after remodeling it to house 164 inmates. So he constructed the first of two cell blocks. 1896 yeah. cell block bordered the yeah. territorial building on its southern side and could house 256 inmates in four tiers of 32 cells, each measuring six feet by eight feet deep. So six feet long, eight feet deep, and seven feet four inches tall. So pretty freaking small cells. I mean, people that was were... a huge upgrade yes. to what they probably were in before. Yes, it it so, was. But everything the- is everything is incremental, it feels like, with this prison. Like, all the quote-unquote updates and improvements that they make are all incremental. There's nothing, mm-hmm. you know, and all the research I did and all the, you know, quote-unquote work that Conley did to the prison. I guess it doesn't need air quotes for the work. <laughs> the prisoners did all the work. He just sat back right. and, and watched them work. He made but, it happen. Yes. But it was, it was never, they never took on big projects to really improve the prison and bring it into modern day of the time but right. they did enough <laughs> just to stay open yeah okay maybe this one yeah well one of she's but still like six feet long eight feet deep and seven feet four inches tall like could you imagine having to live it's in like that? being stuck in one small bedroom for for you, you know, know however long you're in jail yeah exactly crazy with no with, with like a really nothing. small bedroom <laughs> And no electricity, no yeah. running water. Exactly. So you none know. of yeah, and that brings me to my next point. None of these cells had plumbing, however, and inmates again used the bucket system, one for fresh water and the other for human waste. Ew. Each door locked individually, which, when combined with the wooden stoves which heated the building and the wooden roof, created a safety hazard in the case of a fire. Electricity Ew. didn't enter the building until after the start of the twentieth century. This construction in 1896 was was a market improvement from the antiqui. Oh, I wrote yeah, I wrote this word in like I'm probably not going to be able to pronounce this. <laughs> we'll just say this: the old territorial building. How about I read it for you? Yeah. <laughs> like yeah, you I'm writing this. Say, I'm like oh, let's let's try to sound smart, but I can't pronounce it. From the antiquated. Territorial building. That's Thank a you. sentence. It's a tongue-tie twister. It really is, right? La, 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 la. <laughs> I should have thought about that when I was writing. <laughs> I didn't read it out loud, which I should have. Yeah, I, I try to do that. But yeah, so they built the 1896 cell block. Is what literally it's still named the 1896 cell block. You oh, can, is it? Yeah, you can see it now um, if you go and That's tour cool. it. Even with that cell house that they built, they still had overcrowding. So to try to reduce that further, Conley put prisoners to work outside of the prison. This would generate additional income for the prison, where the prisoners would live and be hired out for both public and private work. This worked so well that by the late 1890s, about one-third of the prisoners worked outside of Montana State Prison. 
At these camps, which housed about 75 prisoners each, inmates enjoyed a relatively high degree of freedom, with neither chains nor cells restricting them. However, outside work was a privilege, and the slightest infraction of the rules would immediately send a prisoner back behind prison walls. Yeah, so you better mind your P's and Q's, brother, if you don't want to go back. I mean, they still have these... I mean, I feel mm-hmm. like Conley, you know, really started something because I feel like in the United States, they still have these kind of work. They prisons. do. It's the guys you see cleaning on the side of the road. Some of exactly. those guys, they do do that. They have work parties that go out and do all kinds of things, yep. clearing timber that needs to be cleared that fell down in the winter to out here. This, you know, it's all kinds of stuff. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So the that, ones that, that have earned it, you know, and they can trust them. As we'll we'll find out, Conley was well, not the, the greatest human, but you know this is a pretty innovative thinking for the, for the time. It is, especially because he's trying to run a business by that point. Yeah, exactly. You know, and he's doing what he's got to do. That's right. I'm sure there's some greed involved. When isn't there? Oh, but. absolutely. But you know, it's it's good to get work for prisoners, so they're not just sitting in cells. Oh yeah, I think you know I yeah. I could get behind that. You know, outside Absolutely. of prison walls, get some sunshine, mm-hmm. and get and get some good labor in, and yep, exactly. Cut down on the fights and the you know, just good for everybody all the way around. I I think so, for sure. Mm-hmm. So by the second decade of the 20th century, about 50 percent of the inmates were working outside the penitentiary, traveling throughout Montana, erecting numerous state buildings, paving more than 500 miles of roads, and working on 11 different ranches that provided food for state-owned institutions. Mm. Well, that's a pretty good idea, too. Yeah, yeah, exactly. You know, the state, they were working to, to maintain the state. Yeah, you know, exactly. That's a good idea. You know, it, again, that's, in that's, theory, it is a great idea, but put into hands of greedy politicians and, and people, just in general. It, everyone always tries to get their piece of the That's pie. exactly it. And then when you got 100 people reaching for the piece of the pie, those budgets get out of control. Yep, absolutely. That's where it all comes in ridiculous it is so switching gears a little bit uh although the territorial prison started accepting prisoners in 1871 it did not see its first female prisoner until december of 1878 so it took you know seven years before they saw the first female in the same prison though yep Yep. See, they they don't even do that today no exactly and we'll we'll get into it a little bit here felicita sanchez yeah, I think that's um, it. Hey. We'll, we'll go with that. Felicita Sanchez was the first woman prisoner at Montana State Penitentiary. Mary Angeline Thibault would join her a year later in December 1879 as the first two women prisoners of this facility. And again, not separated from the men as far as general population. You know, I'm sure they were in their own cells, but hey. they were both charged with manslaughter. That's the reason they were in there. Not many women were sent to the state prison in the 19th or early 20th centuries as the crimes had to be severe for a woman to be handed over to the state prison system. Many women of their time were arrested and sent to county jails for things such as petty theft, prostitution, drug charges, etc., but fined and released quickly thereafter. So, yeah, it took quite a bit for a woman to be locked up in a state prison. Oh, yeah, so they were... There had to be a dead body, pretty much. Yeah, exactly. You know, they had to murder their husband or a John or something like that. Or do some not-so-nice surgery. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Lorena Bobbitt style. Oh, God. (laughs) Makes me hurt just thinking about it. Not until 1902 did women prisoners have their own space around the prison. 
Conley built a separate dwelling outside the main prison walls for women prisoners. This was in response to the concerns over women's rights at the time. It was a small building with a small exercise yard, but it gave the women prisoners at least a little separation from the male prisoners. December of 1878, the first woman prisoner was accepted, in, but it took them until 1902 before they built a separate space for women. 24 years. Yeah. That's kind of why I, you know, it's just a small section, but just how slowly things worked as far as updates and and renovations happening in in that place. Just imagine that it, I mean, it's, to me, it's more on the other side, it's more amazing that it happened at all because they're in the middle of nowhere, in the middle of nowhere. Exactly. You know when. You're in the, you know literally in the middle of Montana. I guess it's a little bit west, but it's like in the but, middle of. this is in the 1860s, 70s, 80s, 90s. Exactly. Who's watching? Exactly. Nobody. Nobody. So they didn't have to do anything, it's, really. I mean, they really, you're, you're right. You know, they so the fact that it did happen is pretty sure impressive. Awful, awful things happened to the female prisoners. Yeah, I can't even like and, I didn't find anything. But even the males. Oh, I never did. But can you imagine? Yeah. You I know, mean, life not. was pretty. Maybe they all decided to get along. I don't know. I don't know. I mean, life seemed pretty miserable, but you didn't see it didn't seem like there were a ton of squabbles between prisoners. It was more the guards and prisoners and just prisoners trying to escape you know i'm sure there were things that happened you know there were probably fights Mm -hmm. people getting stabbed or something over squabbles but you know it's not like it didn't seem like it's like modern prison where you just have to watch your back 24 7 yeah, it's probably a little more laid back because they're all like, "Oh, we're here now." And yeah, we're like the all best. yeah, we're oh, all in this miserable place. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Let's do the best we can. Yeah, let's hope. So, in 1919, Conley's good friend William A. Clark donated ten thousand dollars for the construction of a prison theater, the first in U.S. history. Whoa! Dubbed the W. A. Clark Theater, the pride of the Montana State Prison was completed in March 1920. It boasted seating for a thousand people in leather-covered seats and catered to prisoners and members of the community alike. It hosted concerts, plays, prize fights, movies, and more. For Conley, it became an instant disciplinary tool. Unruly inmates were denied access to the theater. The theater was a mainstay of the prison life until its destruction by an unknown arsonist on December 3rd, 1975. Probably by somebody who had been denied going to it once before and was not happy. If I can't go, nobody's going to go. Well, maybe we'll, <laughs> well, maybe we'll find out in I don't part know. two. I think that's a very cool thing. I, d- I did not know that about having a beautiful theater. Yeah, there were a lot of things that uh, that Conley would do that it was way far reaching, like looking into the future. Yeah, exactly. You know, he seemed to be a guy that that kind of he wasn't looking at the here and now. He was kind of looking, oh, what is this going to look like 10 years down the road? Right. Yeah. But a lot of it was for political show too. It seemed like. Well, if it kept him in kept him in that job, right? Which it did for thirty one years. Obviously, he was making the right people happy. That's exactly it. And you know, get it. We'll get into it a little bit. But he he definitely made friends with the right people in the state. Like William A. Clark was the head of the Anaconda Mining Company. I think it was called. So he was a pretty okay. big deal in in Montana. Okay. 
So getting back to the prison, though the buildings inside the prison grounds were extensive and time-consuming, Warden Conley did not stop there with the theater I'm talking about. During his tenure as warden, he used prison labor to run 11 separate ranches, which produced beef, pork, poultry, and dairy products for prison use. Prison farm, which produced vegetables for the inmates and feed for the animals on the ranches, and a slaughterhouse. He also built and operated a brickyard, which could produce up to 60,000 bricks per day. His prisoners were also loggers, and they processed their lumber at the lumberyard sawmill they had built. Conley also assisted the state by using inmate labor to build 11 buildings of the Montana State Hospital in Warm Springs, four buildings for the Montana State Tuberculosis Sanatorium in Galen, and over 500 miles of roads in the state, which I had already talked about. That's all, I, I think, a good use of the prisoners. I mean, it's yeah. better than... Unless it was forced labor when I get it. It, it kind of is. It's, you know, it's, it is. It's kind of next to, I mean, it's, it's close it's a, to slave labor, there. really, because they're not getting paid. Mm-hmm. And they're, you know, really the only thing they're getting, you know, quote unquote, paid for is, is being able to be outside the prison walls. And that and the room and board. So the brickyard in the lumber house were built because of the high cost of transportation for bricks and wood. Oh, that makes sense. Yeah. And again, this is Conley having that forethought. Yeah, exactly. To, Hey, you know, it's super expensive to get materials here. Let's just make our own stuff. (laughs) So, Mm -hmm. so in that way, you know, he was pretty innovative, but again, you know, using prison labor, I keep, kind of just flip-flopping because it just seems like it's it's akin to to slave labor because they don't have any choice in the matter it's basically it is it's a hard yeah they don't just do it or die yeah probably or you know do it or you're stuck in your cell and you can go into one of these which i'll start talking about here shortly one of the quote-unquote holes that they had which sounded god-awful i bet it was uh But about road building, Conley stated, the work done by the men in the way of road construction is itself of inestimable value to the state and counties, and greater still are the benefits derived by the prisoners. The outside work, the absence of physical restraint, and the trust and confidence instill in each man a sense of pride, both for himself and for his work. He values his advantages and privileges, He does not brood and ponder over his sufferings and wrongs, his failures and disappointments. He awakens to a new appreciation of life and determines to make a better future. To me, that's a good way to look at it. And I think that I think that his heart was probably in that. I think he, in a lot of cases, I mean, I think that's what he believed. I I think 100% he believed, but I also feel like that is a man. God, I'm just stumbling over words today. Maybe I shouldn't do a podcast. <laughs> <laughs> you think that the professionals don't have words? The way he's thinking about it is basically what we were talking about, where he's using slave labor to do all this. He is able to to think of it in this way so he doesn't feel guilt or he thinks he's doing something good in... Okay. But I think it's I think something... I believe, I'm on his side right now, dang it. You know what? I... He firmly believes that statement, but it's also just a way for him to to not have the guilt and not have that on I his suppose, shoulders, I suppose. I suppose. I don't know enough about 
this. So, I, I guess he definitely he definitely profited, you know, personally oh, from absolutely his job. So, you know, if someone did that nowadays, yeah, you'd be in a lot of trouble. Morally, is it right? I don't think so. Probably not, um, unless the prisoners had a choice. Right. Which I'm sure he would say that they did, but they really don't. <laughs> if you yeah, refuse like, to work. You can stay here in this cell and do nothing, or you can come outside. Yeah, or, you know, you could get thrown in the hole. Uh-huh. By early 1921, Conley was removed as warden. In addition to the problems Conley had with prisoners, the community began to complain of his use of prisoners in the office of warden for personal gain. Just ah. exactly what we were talking about. When he arrived in Deer Lodge, he had been a lowly deputy but within 20 years had risen to be one of the most powerful men in the region. Through the years, he had become personal friends with William A. Clark, we discussed earlier, and through him, the Anaconda Copper Mining Company. That's who, that's what William A. Clark owned. That's what William Clark owned? Yep, and that company was actually a subsidiary of John D. Rockefeller's Standard Oil, who we talked about Rockefeller in length in our uh, previous episode, and I'm blanking on that episode. (laughs) <laughs> me too it must not have been very good <laughs> no it was the uh pigman road pigman Pig road pigman road yep so if you want to hear about john d rockefeller escaping death go listen to that we have a lot of local history with rockefeller there's rockefeller buildings in this town in our hometown yep i mean uh, from ohio to new york and pennsylvania he he has his fingerprints to this day fingerprints. all over yeah. All over that all region. All over New York City. Yep. Yep. Exactly. And all these towns. There's a Rockefeller building in every little town, it seems, in, or a decent-sized town in upstate New York, too. So Conley didn't have direct access to Rockefeller. It was just William A. Clark's company was a subsidiary of Rockefeller's yeah. Standard Oil. That's some serious company to be in, though. Yeah, absolutely. While using prison labor to construct the prison itself, roads for the state, and buildings for state institutions. He had also found a way to have the inmates build him an expensive warden's residence across Main Street from the prison, a hunting lodge on the shores of his private lake, and another for Thomas McTeague, Uh-oh. and a racetrack where he ran his own thoroughbreds. He also used the produce of the prison ranch and farm to entertain guests like Theodore Roosevelt, Franklin D. Roosevelt, Secretary of the Treasury William Gibbs McAdoo. I think that would be McAdoo. Is it McAdoo? Yeah, you're probably right. I think so. So Secretary of the Treasury, William Gibbs McAdoo, several Montana governors, and of course, Copper King, William Clark, along with a number of directors of the Anaconda Mining Company. At these events, he commonly used prisoners as cooks, waiters, and servants. Uh-oh. Frank Conley was not only warden of the Montana State Prison, he was voted mayor of Deer Lodge from 1892, 1893, from 1895 to 1903, and again from 1907 to 1929, a position he held for eight years after being removed from his duties as warden. The man responsible for Conley's downfall was Governor Joseph M. Dixon. Dixon took office under the promise to remove the powerful Anaconda Mining Company from state politics, and upon hearing that the warden of the state prison was heavily involved with the company, He launched a series of investigations and audits which laid bare the extent of Warden Conley's corruption between 1908 and 1921. 
Uh-oh. Yeah. So what did he do? <laughs> I know I alluded to it earlier, but Conley, yes, he had some innovative thoughts, but he was very much out for himself. So what did he get? What did he So some of the points that Dixon's auditor found were appropriating beef, assorted groceries and produce, cream and butter for his private use in the amount of some $8,330. Or a million dollars nowadays. Yeah. No. <laughs> no, but you know, fifty to $100,000 in today's Easy. money. Over half a million tons of state coal for his private residence. Using and maintaining 13 private autos at state expense, running up a gas, oil, and maintenance bill of over $12,000 per year on the vehicles. That's a ton of money. That's $12,000 a year back then? Most people no, didn't people make didn't close even, to that much money. Most people were making $1,000 a year if they were lucky. Not exactly. even that. Half of that. 500 well, we're, you know, we're talking 1908 to 1921, so I feel like... I remember my grandfather... 5,000. After World War II, he got out and he was working at the factory, and he was bringing home $36 a week and could afford to buy a house and a car. Yeah. Not $36 well, a week. Well, that's... Yeah. 1947. That's exactly so these people, it. <laughs> these people were probably making 20 or $30 a month, or, you know, a week, I mean, at, at the best. And yeah. He, <laughs> You're probably not... But some other things that uh, the auditor found, using the prison's ranch to feed his private dairy herd and employing free inmate labor to care for and feed his livestock. And selling to the state for use in the prison, dairy products and beef produced by the herd at market rates. So so the state was paying to... The state was paying him to raise them. And to produce them and to take care of them. And then then he he would sell it back to the prison (laughs) at market rates. My God. Talk about a racket. He did this for, you know, 15 years. 15, 16 years. At least. Or sorry, about 13 years. And this is just, yeah, this is just the 13 years that they audited him for. He still had yeah, 18 years. Back. He'd been doing stuff forever. Yeah, because he was warden from 1890 to 1908, and they only were <laughs> they were only looking into 1908 to 1921. Yeah, but then they then the town still elects a mayor after that. Yeah, for again. eight years after this, he was the, t- the mayor of Deer Lodge. So everybody was okay with it, really. Uh, other than apparently, the, other than the law. Yeah, other well, other than <laughs> this uh, Dixon. Other than the yeah, the, the governor saying the Wait governor, a yeah, things are messed because it wasn't it wasn't just kindly it was going on everywhere. If oh, exactly, it, exactly. I mean, there's no way that he would have been able to do that. He would have been without, mayor, let alone out of prison for eight years if right. you know yeah. not everybody else was doing it. Well, I think that our, our ex president took some, probably took this guy's class somewhere at some point. Apparently, yeah, the Conley <laughs> well, hey, class now, of you? corruption in. Conley class of how to get away with it. Yeah, exactly. So Governor Dixon wasted no time in bringing Conley to trial on charges of corruption. Judge A.J. Horsey. I'm going to say Horsey because it's fun. (laughs) I like it in that. I mean, H-O-R-S-E-Y. I mean, how else would you pronounce it? Horsey. Yeah, no, it's A.J. Horsey. (laughs) So Judge A.J. Horsey. However, could find no written statute which fully defined the relationship the state of Montana shared with Frank Conley, and so could find no laws Conley had broken. In the words of the judge, 
every act of Conley was in the interest of the state of Montana. Mm. Although stripped of the influential office of warden, Conley continued as mayor of Deer Lodge until 1929 and lived in the city until his death in Butte on March 5th, 1939. So he died the same year that my mother was born. Yep. Yeah, what? Ooh. Yeah, so March 1939. of 1939. Yep, and he he ran Deer Lodge until 1929. You know, all in all of what I've seen so far, I have mixed feelings about the guy too. I mean, I think he did a lot of I think he did do a lot of good. I think that the things that he did taught people that that was corruption. I don't think it was the way people thought about it so much in those terms. It was just getting the job done and doing what you had to do. I could see at the beginning, yes. In the beginning, but that that stuff about, you know, all the private use. Yeah. I mean, all the things that he... God, that's what? That's $100,000 at least in that 13 years. In those times, that is that's millions and millions of dollars in today. Yeah, exactly. He was yeah he was raking the state over coals. Oh, he just. Yeah. I bet he had some lavish vacations they didn't even talk about too. Oh, I'm sure. I'm sure there are things that they couldn't. You know, they just had circumstantial evidence of, so they couldn't bring mm-hmm. up charges on. Because back in those days, you didn't have somebody taking pictures of you. Yeah, exactly. You didn't have social media. You could get away with stuff. <laughs> right yeah i mean right, hell back right. then we need to go back no. <laughs> back then you know you literally no, just moved to another state and change your name and that's just who you are now and you know because yeah, they oh yeah they yeah you didn't have to show an id you didn't have to right yeah you just showed up and said hey i'm i'm billy bob like what does an id back then look like was it just like you know, a piece of bark with your name etched into it <laughs> <laughs> I'll, I'll ask your grandmother <laughs> <laughs> you know, so flip me the bird. <laughs> yeah, most definitely will. But yeah, so that will uh, that will do it for Old Montana Prison Part One. So what's going to happen in Part Two? You'll just have to tune in next time to find out. Well, you got to give them a tease, man. Next time we'll we'll get into some of the more famous prisoners that uh, that called home. They have been there. To the prison. And I, yeah, I heard about one. I didn't bring it up. I forgot, but it has something to do with a movie. All right. We'll get famous. into we'll get into some of that and you yeah, know, yeah. some of the some of the little little crazier, little bloodier little history. Yeah, the tragedies of of the prison. Yeah, and I really wanted to I, I really wanted to get into, you know, just kind of the history, just the general history and obviously Conley, because, you know, such an interesting character and just, I mean, without Conley, I don't think the prison would have lasted as long as it did. And a lot of those reforms, if you want to call that, that he did wouldn't, yeah. wouldn't have happened. I don't know if other people were doing that around the country. It'd be interesting to find out if people were ahead of him in those kind of reforms in the prisons or if he was just copycatting right. to save his job. Yeah. That I mean, it's it, like, everything I, I read about him. It kind of seemed like, he was ahead of his time, really. You yeah, know? that's what I've seen, too. Because yeah. most prisons, by the time that he was, you know, just a guard in the 1870s, 1880s, before he took uh-huh. over as warden, you know, like I mentioned at the beginning of this episode, not a lot of state prisons out there. You know, obviously the East Coast had its prisons, you know, the New York cities and the Philadelphia's, the oh, larger Philadelphia cities, one. but... 
you know, there was no blueprint for mm-hmm. for how to do this, especially out west. True. In the middle of nowhere in Montana. And the communications weren't what they are today, that's for exactly, sure. Exactly. You know, you have your We're writing uh, letters, sending telegrams. Exactly. Phones. The Pony Express the back phone, then. They think yeah, and then you know, when would they have first had phones in the Montana State Prison? Maybe by nineteen hundred or Yeah, I mean you think maybe by nineteen ten, nineteen fifteen? Because, yeah, it wasn't wasn't until the turn of the 20th century, I think it was around 1910, they got electricity in the the prison. Yeah, exactly. I mean, they obviously didn't have a phone before that. It's kind of crazy. So, uh uh-huh. That explains why he could get away. Imagine what he got away with that they didn't catch him. Oh. So they caught him once the information age kind of started. Yeah. The technological age. That's when he got caught. (laughs) Exactly. Uh, Yeah, when you could send a telegram. listening right now. Yeah, when you can send a telegram or, you know, at that point, phones, people communicating. You get a telegram and I would say somebody's name, but did you know uh, any proof it was really them? Right. Yeah, that's true. That's very (laughs) true. So, yeah, that'll wrap up uh, part one of Old Montana Prison. Part two, we'll uh, bring up uh, uh, something from uh, a gang called the Wild Bunch. Yep. Yeah, we'll, uh, we'll fill you in on the details. That is it for part one. Thanks for taking a trip back in time with us and join us next time for part two, where we'll get more into some of the characters and tragedy that called this prison home. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening to Creatures of the Night. (laughs) Next time. Until next time. (laughs) See ya.